have to be careful with the plant life around here. Some of it's carnivorous. Some species even have an intelligence rating. Well, that's a comfort. I should hate to be eaten by something stupid. Welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 4, Time Squad. First broadcast on the 23rd of January 1978. Like all of season 1, it was written by Terry Nation. This is directed by Pennant Roberts. It's his second episode after doing Spacefall two weeks ago. The ratings for this one, 8.9 million. So that's up another 400,000 from the 8.5 last time. So building an audience as we go. All right, let's get into it. So before we talk about our views, I've just got a couple of dot points I want to cover about this episode because although it doesn't look like much from a distance, there actually is a lot going on in this. Mm. It is the final formation of the Seven from the title. So we've finally got the entire crew, meaning that it's the end of this whole intro to the series set of four episodes. Yes, and back in the days of the compilation tape, it's the end of the first one. It's the end of the first tape. I was actually going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, it's the first time we actually see Blake now out there and fighting the Federation, doing his freedom fighter stuff. But we'll talk about the form that takes later on in this episode. It's the first time we get a more regular or traditional sci-fi adventure or space fantasy adventure. Yes. Which has become something we're going to see a lot more of as the series diverges, because it can't just be Blake blowing up a different bit of the Federation every week. They start to throw a bit of variety in there. We see that here. It's also unusual in that the A-plot is actually on the ship, and that is the larger part of the episode, and the B-plot is down on a planet. Yes, particularly considering the B-plot is what they set out to do at the start. Exactly, and they don't actually get to the planet until about 22 minutes in. We'll talk about that, but Richard, what are your initial thoughts on Time Squad? Well, probably the other thing with this, I think just as a dot point, this now very clearly sets up Avon as an antagonist for Blake within the crew. But uh, in terms of initial thoughts, I'm going to say I think this is the weakest of the first four episodes, sadly. There is some good stuff in there. I think the opening probably 15, 20 minutes when we're just with the regulars on the ship, I think there's some very good stuff in there, some good character development stuff. Once we actually get into resolving the two plot threads, though, I there's not an awful lot happening in there at times. I don't know. I think part of it is perhaps because there's no speaking parts, I think, other than the regulars or the character who's about to become a regular. Yeah. So, yeah. It is interesting. I was reflecting upon this as I was thinking about my thoughts during the day. As you said, it was the final part of the infamous compilation tape at the beginning where they took 200 minutes of Blake 7 and edited it down to 120. Yes. Now, interestingly enough, as we discussed a couple of episodes ago... In the way back, they just carve out an entire subplot. So all of the stuff with the trial being set up and investigated and the lawyers, that's all just carved out. Yes. Spacefall and Cygnus Alpha both have padding sort of cut out. So stuff like, for example, in Cygnus Alpha, where Blake goes down to the planet for the first time for mm. no apparent reason, that's just cut out. So they just sort of make cuts. You get the feeling watching Time Squad that they've just sort of gone through and had to find another 10 minutes to cut out and just sort of randomly done it. So my memories of Time Squad were of it being this little compact little sort of almost novella at the end of it all sort of you know well we set everything up here's a little adventure to get us going and like that it kind of works Mm. as a full 50 minutes you do notice the padding and there is some really clever stuff in there there's some very good stuff in there and it's directed relatively well in places it's directed slightly badly in places as well pennant roberts is really up and down i think in this one Mm. What I guess I'm, I'm circling around to is I agree with you, it is the weakest of the first four, but I found more stuff to like in this, watching it for the podcast, than I expected to going in. Yeah, that's probably fair. All right, so we've got a lot to cover in this episode. What I've decided to do is, this is one of my ones to, to lead us off on, <laughs> I've divided it into three segments. So I want to talk about the A plot as its own little thing, the B plot as its own little thing, and then talk about some of the character stuff that we can pull out of both of those. Because I think there is some quite important character development here. We are, after all, only four episodes into the series. That's right. We're still very much in a setup phase. Yeah, very, very much so. And we see a lot of that here. Talking about the A plot, which is the, the Time Squad plot, with the Time Squad he's in. 
It starts off with some actually really interesting stuff. Clearly some time has passed since Cygnus Alpha, and the crew is learning how to fly the ship. Yes. And I thought that was actually a really nice touch. The series has taken a moment just to pause. Okay, they don't know how this ship works. They don't know how to use certain parts of the ship. We get just a little scene here where they're clearly still trying to familiarise themselves with how the controls work. And they go into a bit of detail there. There's some really nice little touches like... Blake trying to execute a task and he forgets the last switch or something, Jen has mm. to tell him. Even a few minutes later when Villa has to activate the scanner, you see Michael Keating plays it very hesitantly. He's like, I think this is the right switch. Is it? Is it? Yep, it worked. And rather than them all being confident and just sort of playing around with the ship as though they know it. It's a really good touch. Yeah, so they've clearly just outrun a group of Federation pursuit ships which probably aren't the same ones we encounter at the end of Cygnus Alpha. No, and they also get a few little character moments in there, like Gan's wonderful... I think we make a good team. To which Avon replies... <laughs> well, hooray for us. <laughs> Plus, I suppose the other thing is, jumping forward a bit, Villa's also had time to assemble his little box of tricks. He uh, has, yes. Basically an esky with some gear in it. Yeah, and you also get them showing how awesome the ship is just a little line like outrun them in this we can outstroll them yes we do also get the comment from villa there in that same sequence that they've got the whole universe to hide in which i guess is being a subjective but yes i think i think that was a uh, rhetorical flourish rather than a literal yes interpretation because <laughs> it, it is fair to say at this stage we're very much inside the galaxy yes well i was going to say that is an idea that we will encounter later probably a mild spoiler and as you mentioned in the introduction richard we also start to get a bit of that antagonism between blake and avon really starting to play out yes most definitely his line and it's really following on from Cygnus alpha is that just blindly following blake is going to get them all killed yes and it ends with that bit as they're leading into the conversation about what they're going to do and we'll talk about that in the b plot where villa says to blake i don't follow you and avon replies oh but you do and that's the problem blake's management style is very much this is what we're doing and if you don't want a part of it there's the door yeah and avon's comment is not so much that he has a problem with them agreeing with blake per se it's that he agrees with them mindlessly or sheepishly yes that there's no discussion and i mean he has his comment a moment or two later where Blake says well we'll talk about it and then turns around and sets a course for saurian major and that's not my idea of a discussion no and we'll talk about that in the b plot but at this point, they encounter the alien probe or whatever it is, ship, shuttle. Zen won't give them any information. Now, that's an important point we need to mention there because this, again, builds on that idea that Zen is not just a slavish computer but has limits. And it's not really made clear here what's going on. I think it's just there to sort of set up something for the future that Zen will withhold information. And indeed, just looking forward, he will not take the alien ship on board on automatics. No, he clearly has a defined boundary on how much assistance and information he can give them. Yes, and Gan also says at one point that maybe Zen has a limiter as a really terrible bit of foreshadowing <laughs> for later on in the episode. Again, something we'll talk about in that character section. Blake and Jenna decide to teleport across the ship. I did note there that the teleport clearly is able to move bodies around in transit so that they're bending down. Yes, yeah, so, the, so Blake's sort of roof. pressed up against the roof. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, I mean, at least they're a slightly wary. I mean, Jenna does make the thing about fake distress calls or something that space pirates use. Yes. But then they teleport across there anyway. Yeah, it's, it's very odd. And speaking of odd, let's talk about the actual alien vessel that they get to. Because... Look, it's a sci-fi trope, we'll talk about that, but it actually makes no sense. You've got this ship that's been sent out into deep space to carry what is presumably some sort of colony over to a new planet or whatever it is, and they talk about how they've got the cells that will grow into a fully formed alien in 1.6 minutes later on, and then they've got these guardians on board, and it's not clear whether they're actual aliens or just something that was bred to be a guardian, we'll talk about that. But what's the actual point? Is this the ship meant to touch down on a random planet or a selected planet and then do the aliens grow it's got a distress signal there that shuts the ship down what what's actually meant to happen so something goes wrong on this automatic ship you'd think that it would wake up the guardians but it doesn't it just turns everything off no and you sort of wonder well if anybody did find and decide to help them as indeed the liberator crew have given the violent nature of the Guardians, who then just turn on them. Yeah, so the Guardians are programmed to just kill anything that isn't like them. There is that thing at the end where they're talking about they can grow from a single cell in, in 1.6 minutes. You sort of get the feeling there's a missing scene or a couple of lines of dialogue there about what the capture was, because we have Avon making some educated guesses that there's 
obviously nothing there about takeoff, so it's obviously designed for a one-way trip. They're in cryogenic storage because it's something that's longer than the lifespan of an average man. There's no equipment, so clearly they are expected at arrival, or indeed, as he says, we're missing the point entirely. Yeah, and maybe maybe we are as well. Uh, again, though, the technology of this alien species group, whatever it is, isn't remotely consistent because they've got incredibly advanced genetic capabilities, but they don't have anything like basic space flight beyond sending a probe very slowly from one side of the galaxy to the other. No. And indeed, when the Guardians pop out, they use knives. They don't even have good knives. They have the most useless knives you could ever devise because they've got a forked ending that wouldn't stab anybody effectively anyway. No, but they're space knives. They are space knives. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. It looks really cool. Like, you can imagine the effects designers being told, go and make some cool space knives. So they make something very different, but completely yes. non-functional. Yes. <laughs> and I guess I also struggle with this lack of distinction as to whether these guardians actually are like representatives of the species or they're just like bred to be guardians. Mm. Because if the rest of the species is like that, they're just going to go and colonise a planet by walking around with bad moustaches and grunting on it. It's, it's just a terrible portrayal of an alien species. Time Squad replaced another script, which was called Locate and Destroy, yeah. which was dropped, I think, when they changed the way back to exclude Travis. So look, whether this is one that was just sort of belted out in a hurry... Or again, and this is the first time we'll say this, and I'm sure we'll say it again, this is an example of an episode that probably works quite well watched once on transmission and maybe wasn't designed for two sad men to sit down and, <laughs> and analyse it in a lot of detail 40 years later. Well, see, I was actually going to make more the point that it ran for about 40 minutes and then Chris Boucher had to add another 10, but I'll, yours is probably better. Both, both points do stand. We also should talk as well about this concept of cryogenics because it, it really was a bit of a staple, if not a cliche, by this stage in sci-fi. Yes, I think the idea, cryonics actually, I think is the, the term when it applies to freezing people, but it's in the 60s, I think, is when the, when the first paper is published about theoretically it would be possible. But you see it, I mean, classic Trek used it as far back as the sort of mid to late 60s in Space Seed. It's in a lot of science fiction writing. It is. I think Lost in Space uses it, or at least that's the initial concept that the Robinsons are going to be frozen. Yes, that's right. They're going to go to sleep for the first part of the journey. And and even nine years later, in a very early next generation, that's the basis of an entire episode. And again, you have... As you do in most of these ones, there's the one cubicle that didn't work and the occupant's been killed just to show you how dangerous it is. Yeah, well, actually, the other one we missed, of course, is uh, 2001. Yes. Um, I don't know whether that's actually freezing, but they're certainly placed in hibernation. Yeah, that idea that if you want to travel in deep space, you need to hibernate is, Hmm. is very much out there. So we've got these aliens. They're on board. They've got bad moustaches. They grunt a lot. They try and kill things. Uh, we'll talk about the way that GAN reacts, I think, as its own separate conversation, because that, that is important. I wanted to just make mention, though, again, with the acting, when they bring the capsule on board, because Blake and Jenner are over there, Avon has to actually steer the ship and bring it on board. And the way that Paul Darrow plays that is really, really good, because he looks extremely nervous. You can actually see him sort of wiping the sweat from his hands, yes. getting nervous, not sure what to do. And... That's, I think, the first time we've really seen Avon as not fallible, but lacking in confidence. Yeah, I think so. Unfortunately, that scene is quite extended and really sort of feels like padding, uh, unfortunately. Probably also doesn't help that you can see the stick holding up the capsule a couple of times (laughs) as well. But there's also the stuff leading into that where suddenly the teleport just fuses and won't work and Zen won't tell them why or how long it's going to take. Yes, so that's our first iteration for this episode of the teleport conveniently isn't available at the right moment for the plot. <laughs> we get a second one later on and yes, it becomes, a, se- almost, becomes yes. a series trope we're going to have to watch out for. You're right, though, it is a little bit ponderous. Some of it I don't mind because they're taking the time to show this is difficult, it's dangerous, build up the tension, but ponderously long shots of a hatch opening on the outside probably wouldn't be needed in a slightly more expanded episode no well i suppose they've made these nice models and you want to see them in use (laughs) also interesting there is that jenna basically accuses avon of sabotaging the teleport yes her immediate thing is what did you do yes i I suppose probably because let's say last week when she went off to get changed he immediately starts dismantling the console (laughs) to see how it works yeah i hadn't thought about that that is actually a nice piece of continuity yeah i hadn't considered that I, i just took it as He's thought this is his chance to get rid of Blake and she's just there too. (laughs) 
Oh, sorry, the teleport's not working. Oh, well, Blake died. Bad luck. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Better go to a planet and spend our money. <laughs> it's a stupid plan the aliens have. It doesn't work under scrutiny. It does allow for a bit of tension, though. Essentially, you get to a point where Jenna is alone on the ship. We know that there are hostiles out there. They think it's two of them. Zen informs the audience, but not the crew, that it's yep. actually a third one. Well, I suppose you sort of get that ratcheting up of the tension. You know, you get Dudley Simpson's lone maraca <laughs> as, as she's sort of creeping around the ship. And this is the stuff where Pennant Roberts does do a very good job, I think, as director, in that you do get those quite well-filmed shots of the corridors, Jenna going down. Mm. You know, what, what could be a very boring shot. And let's face it, they only had one corridor. They had sort of that T-junction mm. and one length of corridor. Yeah, and they sort of have, you know, one and a bit walls of a loading bay yeah. to film that stuff in. So given all that, he does film it relatively well. The one part I thought was a bit poor was when the, the tool that hits Jenna in the shoulder sort of comes out of nowhere and she turns around and there clearly is nowhere to hide and the guy clearly isn't there. Then she turns back and suddenly he's there. Yeah. Uh, look, okay, the script requires it, but there could have been at least something for him to hide behind. <laughs> but it does bring the tension up very well. And what's important is that Jenna actually does solve this. All the rest of the crew's down on the planet. Gan is incapacitated and or useless. Yes. Jenna does take out the first two all by herself, and the third one more or less by herself with a warning cry from Blake. That's right. So, you know, well done, Jenna. Gets to kick some ass. She does get to kick some ass, and, you know, <laughs> it's pretty cool seeing her do that. The A-plot ends with the Guardians having all been killed... And then they just ditched the capsule or the projectile or whatever this thing is. In, in deep space. Into deep space. That is a interesting moral question. But I guess you can go down the rabbit hole of is a embryo or a single cell a life mm. form? I don't know. No, no, the discussion is really very much, well, we know what these guys were like. We don't want more of them. So out she goes. Yes, and it is also commented on that it's an interesting lesson that you know you don't just go and bring random bits of spacecraft on board the ship, and we'll come back to that because that is where actually the A and the B plot do finally intersect again. Yes, we have the quite pointed comment. Yes, about yes. Kelly. Yes. Which leads us to the B-plot, which is the raid on Saurian Major. It, it was really surprising to me, coming back to this, how small a part of the episode this actually was. We don't arrive at Saurian Major until past the 21-minute mark of a 50-minute episode. Okay. I always used to think of this as being the raid on Saurian Major and some stuff on the ship with the Guardians to mm. keep them busy. It's not. It's the opposite. It is stuff on the ship with the Guardians... And it's almost like they're doing some stuff on the planet just to keep them busy, and so Jenna gets to kick some ass. Yeah, so basically there's, there's something else for the rest of the cast to do. Because really, they teleport down, they sort of wander around a bit, meet Callie, and then the whole raid is over in a few minutes. It is. So, look, we'll talk about that, and we'll go back. So, Saurian Major is set up, and this is our first real example of setting up another world that's actually of the Federation as opposed to Cygnus Alpha, which was just a yes, penal colony at the edges. And that has been through the Federation's ideas and policies around how to deal with a rebellious population. Yes. So what's made implicit in this, and I think it is a very important point for the world building of the series, what we could have assumed is that the Federation governed Earth and expanded mm. and the galaxy was populated as the Federation expanded. This episode makes it clear that's not the case. Mankind expanded, colonised worlds. There were presumably various different upheavals and political changes or whatever. Mm. And at some point, the Federation was formed and then subsumed those worlds. Yes, that's right. It's made very clear here that they were a self-governing colony on Saurian Major. They were then annexed by the Federation. There was a rebellion. And, well, in Blake's words, half the population were butchered and the rest was sent off to penal colonies. Yes, or to the frontier world, which yes. I, I guess is a nice callback to the way back. It is. And it is, again, a nice example of the Federation actually being a very nasty, military, oppressive regime that is justified in being fought. Blake does make the comment that all Federation communications go in and out of Saurian Major. That seems to be a little bit of an exaggeration. Yes, you, you would think it would be maybe for that sector. That was my rationale of it, yes. Or that region of space, but really, because you would think it would have to be very close to Earth. Uh, yes, and what would be the point in something going 
a further distance to Saurian Mage than actually would be to send it direct. Yes. So I, I thought that was a bit of an exaggeration, but it does make a nice target for Blake because... It is a nerve centre. It is a nerve centre. And I was going to say, it's, it's implied to be a military target, but it's really not. It is actually kind of like just blowing up the Telstra building. Yeah, it is. It's a communication centre. And, and that means that although most of the people we see in there are Federation guards in their uniforms with their guns, presumably there's a large number of just ordinary civilians who got a cool job with the Federation Communications Department and, okay, for two years we have to live on Saurian Major, but after that we get a promotion and we ship out there and live a good life and they get blown up because they're in the way. Yes, they're just doing their job. They're just doing their job. And on that note, we will just drop in a couple of seconds of a clip from one of our favourite movies, Clerks, that talks about this in relation to the Death Star. Yes. <laughs> the first Death Star was manned by the Imperial Army. The only people on board were stormtroopers, dignitaries, Imperials. Basically. So when they blew it up, no problem. Evil's punished. And the second time around? The second time around, it wasn't even done being built yet. It was still under construction. So? So a construction job of that magnitude would require a hell of a lot more manpower than the Imperial Army had to offer. I bet they brought independent contractors in on that thing. Plumbers, aluminum siders, roofers. And not just Imperials, is that what you're getting at? Exactly. In order to get it built quickly and quietly, they'd hire anybody that can do the job. Think the average stormtrooper knows how to install a toilet main? All they know is killing in white uniforms. Alright, so they bring in independent contractors. Why are you so upset at its destruction? All those innocent contractors brought in to do the job were killed. Casualties of a war they had nothing to do with. Uh, so yeah, look, just a humorous scene to reflect upon the fact that probably a lot of very ordinary citizens got blown up in this episode. Mm. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Blake stuff, because Blake's character development here is really, really important. So they're planning to, have to do this, they're going down to have a raid. I really love the little piece of acting from Michael Keating where... Blake is picking who's going to get down to the planet, and suddenly Villa, who's been, you know, sort of resting his eyes and just relaxing, suddenly has a real need to look busy and <laughs> to look at the screen and not look at Blake <laughs> until Blake picks him. He's like, oh, you, you saw me, okay. Yeah. It's interesting why Blake chooses Villa here. He says, bring your box of tricks. When they actually get down on the planet, Blake sort of is all surprised when Villa says he can open the door. Yeah, that hasn't really been thought through. Blake wants Avon to help overload the reactor, so... I don't actually know what you know, what mission role he saw for Villa here, but... Just a spare pair of hands, I guess. I guess so. Somebody to keep a look at, I don't know. And he, you could also speculate whether Blake is deliberately keeping Jenner out of trouble at this point. Maybe. I, I don't think the script reads that way deliberately, but you could read that into it. I don't know. I mean, it sort of feels a bit like, was Michael Keating the only actor that could be released for location work or something that day? So, Yes, and in another good character moment, it also has the bit where... Blake asks Avon to come down to the planet with me. Avon replies with, are you sure you can trust me? To which Blake says, as long as we need each other. <laughs> so that relationship really forming up. Uh, small point here, I noticed that at this point when they're packing to go down to the planet, Blake packs a ton of teleport bracelets. So he's clearly planning to meet the rebels and say, hey, anybody want to come and join me on a fun trip around the galaxy? Here's a bracelet, come and join my gang. Yes, that's right. You can be the basis of my army. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so of course they teleport down and I, I will say I actually quite like the use of the red filter mm. uh, over the camera because it does sort of lend I mean it's very obviously the planet quarry but it does at least make it look a little different it does and it's also filmed in an interesting way in that first conversation they have is just sort of three people standing around but then they pull out and they're actually moving in three dimensions up and down the hill and mm. all that sort of thing so they do try and use the quarry as a bit more than just a backdrop yes plus of course they have their uh, whatever they are, they're sort of foam plants. <laughs> There's a bit there where, where Villa obviously touches it. One piece of physical acting from Paul Darrow, he's just about to touch it, and Blake says they can't ever just watch him just hold the hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely throwaway line, but at least they're trying to establish that Saurian Major isn't just Planet Quarry. It is a planet, it has a slightly different lighting, it has different vegetation, it is, in inverted commas, Alien. Yes, plus of course Villa gets to make the joke about how it had to be eaten by something stupid, but... <laughs> <laughs> because he plans to live forever or die trying. Yes. Blake's plan is, well, obviously just wait for the resistance to find them. Yes. So what's the best way to do that? Let's light a fire. Yeah, oh, look, it's it's a stupid move, but a deliberately stupid move. Yes. Uh, and And it does lead to the entire resistance finding him. All one of them. Yes, all one of them. Callie obviously comes and 
pulls a gun on Blake or has Blake in her sights. Yep, and, and we'll expand on Kelly and give her her own segment in a moment. Yeah, um, again, I was actually going to put a shout out. There's a very nice little moment from Michael Keating when he comes out from behind the bushes. And you watch him very quietly just step behind Blake and then talk to Kelly over Blake's shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't noticed that, but you're right, he does do that. So look, we'll talk about Kelly and her introduction, as I say, as its own little bit. Continuing on with the plot, they basically have a very straightforward sabotaging rage. They get into the complex relatively easily. There are not a lot of technicians, but lots of guards just randomly walking around so you know that it's a Federation installation. Yes, that's right, and it's got the big Federation symbol on the door. Yeah, they go into the reactor room. That door is actually very cool, like the big prop. Yes, the big massive door, whatever it's from. Yeah, so that, that actually is pretty cool as they go into the paraneutronic generator, which is a cool sci-fi term. It's been, <laughs> at least it's on a nuclear reactor. Like That would be a bit lame. No, that's right. We have to give it a space name. So, yes, yeah. yes yeah. So, we, so we know it's cool. and again I like the fact and this is something that Blake 7 does a lot and I don't know whether it's Nation or Boucher or possibly both because both of them have done it in other stuff they've done where even though the techno babble is nonsense it is understandable and explainable Mm. so you get this idea of okay Avon's turned off the safety parameters and now he's taking out these things and by pulling that thing out the reaction overloads and it all blows Yes, up. they now can't stop the reaction from going in critical. Yeah, so even though it is just a load of nonsense, hmm. even as a kid and certainly as an adult, you get the idea of what Avon's doing and it's logical and it's thought through and it makes sense. Yes. Of course, we at this point, as the reaction starts to build, we get our second, oh no, suddenly the teleport's unavailable. <laughs> That's moment. right. You, you would think that they would have at least, when they got in the room, Blake, while Avon was working, Blake would have said, look, we're here get ready to teleport us up. Yes. And, you know, Avon, don't do not do the final bit until we're cool that somebody is at the teleport desk ready to operate it. Yes. In fairness, though, the guards were shooting down the door. Well, so. they were, but... Yes. <laughs> it is a nice little trope that we will be keeping a... Uh, we will be having teleport watch for the rest of the series for that. I know, the teleport's not working at the crucial moment <laughs> for whatever reason. The big shame of this all, though, is that that little explosion in the room is pathetic although you watch all the guards just collapse backwards onto the floor so badly done and so badly directed it's meant to be the big climax of this story and you get a small little sort of whiz poppy bang from the center column the guards suddenly all slowly hit the deck and then you know get the big light flash yeah if you'd coupled it i mean look i get you probably only get a small explosion maybe in the control panel if you then cut away, maybe, to then see the big explosion where the whole plant goes up, you might have disguised it that way, but... Yeah, it could have been cut a lot better. Yes. And, look, I don't know how much time the director had, but maybe another take where the guards hit the floor a little harder <laughs> would have just added a little more to that scene. And we do pull away and get you know, the big explosion that you see on the screen, but again... Not until later. It's not until later, and... This idea of we've got to teleport now because the reactor's going up. And then you wait about five or six minutes and see it on the screen. Yeah. It is a shame. And look, we don't want to spend this podcast calling out the effects on Black 7 because that's not what the show's about. But I think on this occasion, it could have been better even on Black 7's budget. And it does undermine the ending of the episode. Yes, which of course is also interesting considering they usually said when they're asked to do an explosion, the visual effects guys usually went the other way. <laughs> far too big. Yeah, so we've had the A and the B plot. They come together with a conversation about Callie we'll talk about in a moment. I think that the A plot is certainly better done. The B plot is more interesting. Yes. Neither of them is all that exciting. Certainly neither of them could have held the episode on their own. Oh, certainly not. And that's why they've split it up here so evenly. I guess they are both really just hors d'oeuvres for what we're going to see. I mean, next week we're going to see a proper space adventure episode. The week after that we get a much bigger Attacking the Federation episode. So I guess this is just sort of saying to the audience, look, we've assembled the team, this is a taste of what's going to come, or yes, the sort of things that's th- going to come. Yes, this is their first act. Yeah, and as that it works, it just isn't as good as stuff that's going to come later. <laughs> So we just want to go through some of the characters here. Jenna, look, this is a great episode for Jenna. She she really does kick ass in this one. She does. I mean, look, she gets to show that obviously she's capable, she can handle herself. 
I mean, you're right, she resolves really the, the bulk of the situation on the ship herself because Gan's sort of either rolling around clutching his head or whatever. And look, given she's supposed to be a free trader, that would make sense. I mean, look, she'd be mixing with other criminals and ne'er-do-wells and whatever. So that's quite good. And I mean, we do have the moments there also where she is actually questioning, look, okay, I'm with this group. She doesn't necessarily agree with what Blake's doing. She was clearly happier hanging around with Blake than she is with Avon, which is the alternative. Yes, and she's clearly happy to not be on Cygnus Alpha. Yes. But you're right. I think she does maintain a cynicism about Blake. She certainly expects Blake to explain and to justify his actions, mm. but she's not going to be as overtly hostile about it as Avon is. No, and, and I guess you do sort of get that idea where she clearly she's there because, look, you're right, she hasn't worked out where else to go yet. Because, you know, I mean, she says even if she did run away and hide, she agrees the Federation would probably find her eventually. It's not even about giving Blake the benefit of the doubt. It's just that, let's put it bluntly, she doesn't want to be a prick about it. No. Unlike Avon, who, as we said at the start, he is very now clearly the antagonist within the crew. You, you sort of get the impression he's probably done the analysis on if there was a spill, how the crew would fall. Gan obviously will follow Blake. Jenna as we said a moment ago, she may not agree with Blake, probably won't side with him because, you know, she's obviously happier with Blake than she is with, with him. And and you've sort of got Villa who probably will just do whatever, whatever less likely to get him killed. Yeah, he'll, he'll basically follow whoever wins. Yeah, pretty much. As long uh, as he's safe, yeah. Yeah, so you sort of get the impression he isn't ready or doesn't feel confident enough perhaps to, to really have an outright challenge for the leadership of the group at the moment. But at the same time, he's not rolling over and showing his stomach. He's... Making sure that Blake knows that, you know, he's going to test what Blake says and he's going to make Blake justify it. And if Blake says something he disagrees with, he's going to say it. That's right. I mean, again, he's obviously got nowhere better to go and realises, much like Jenner, he's probably safer with the group than he is out on his own. I mean, Avon probably also has the additional thing. He's clearly intrigued by the workings of the Liberator and the level of technology on display there, far more than any of the others. And the plot actually gives him something to do to justify his technical skill as well. Hmm. We need to talk now about Blake, because this is where we actually see Blake for the first time being a freedom fighter. Up until now, he's been somebody who's been just embroiled in stuff on the way back. He's just trying to escape in Spacefall, much the same in Cygnus Alpha. He talks about putting together an army and finding the Federation, but he hasn't done it. This is the first time where he's like, right, I am now a freedom fighter. I am going to go and strike the Federation. It's interesting that the first thing he chooses to do is go and blow something up. Yes, it does raise the question. I mean, look, we see he's obviously, he is determined that this is going to be his fight to bring down the Federation. It does raise the question really probably of who Blake actually is now. Because you're right, him wanting to blow stuff up, it's in direct contrast to what we see of the group in the way back. Foster's group are all about civil disobedience. And you sort of have to wonder, is that what Blake was like four years ago? Or is it now the fact that the events of the way back have just pushed him now to a point where it's just, I'm taking you all down? Yeah, and there are very interesting parallels in this in the real world. And this is the thing we're going to explore as the podcast goes on. You see with a lot of freedom fighting or resistance based groups or political parties in history that they start with civil disobedience or minor sabotage or military targets. And then when that doesn't work, they go on to civilian targets or go on to more active roles of sabotage. The ANC in South Africa. I mean, Nelson Mandela, for all the good stuff he did, he was the guy in the ANC that said, right, we need to start taking on military targets. Yes, he he did advocate armed resistance. And armed resistance. Ireland is certainly one that is very, very prominent at this Mm. time in the UK's history, where there were factions going right back to Michael Collins in the 20s of no, no, we can't just be politically disobedient. We actually have to go and take out members of the government. We have to go and blow up police stations. And by the time you get to the troubles, you've got civilian targets being used on different sites as well. We're not going to go down that political rabbit warren, but you can see in all of these that idea of, well, we actually need to blow stuff up and be aggressive and military if we want to take on a military force. So, yeah, it's an interesting discussion. We'll see this progression in Blake because Saurian Major is defensible in terms of it being a very important part of the Federation. It's not an overtly military target, but neither is it remotely an overtly civilian target. This is very much Blake announcing, this is the start of my war. Yeah, it's his calling card. Yes. Yeah. 
We'll explore Blake a lot more later. Somebody else we're going to explore later, but we need to start the conversation here, is Gan. Now, watching this as somebody who's seen the rest of the series to come, the first thing I've written down is Gan is not stupid in this episode. No, he's portrayed as being quite straightforward and quite practical. You know, we can talk and travel, and we're safer if we're moving around. Yes, he's very engaged with the discussion. He's, he's shown to be on the same level as the rest of the crew, which is something that we don't see in future episodes. Mm. Where, again, foreshadowing, but there are future episodes where the rest of the crew has a conversation and Gan's sort of off-ganning somewhere in yeah, another room. Yeah, he's just room. sort of lurking in the background or, yeah. or sitting in his cabin. Yeah. yeah. Now, I've just got a series of events. What I'm going to ask, Richard, is let me just work through these events and then we can have a bit of a discussion about what they may mean and acknowledge that there are going to be some loose threads here that we're going to come back to as the series evolves. Yes, we did take the point this quickly when we were setting up the podcast that look, we weren't going to be too spoilerish. And look, there is some material here, again, for anyone who's really familiar with the series, that we will come back to in later episodes. Yes, but we want to build this narrative as it builds in the yes. series. So we have the moment where Gan is alone with Jenna. He's clearly unwell. He says he's got a headache. And at one point when he leans down, you see there's something in his skull. Yes. There's a, there's a little metal device. Yeah, he says he can't be alone. He needs to stay with Blake because he, he needs to be around people he can trust. Yeah, he talks about why he was on Cygnus Alpha and how he killed a guard. They said it was murder, but he had the gun. You see, he killed my woman. Uh, a line that I believe David Jackson did object to. Yeah, David Jackson was apparently not that happy with that because I, I think that the way he'd obviously worked out Gan's character in his head was that Gan was somebody who had a wife, you know, and potentially a family, and that was all taken away from him by the Federation. Yeah, I think that we're going to learn as this series goes on that when it comes to deciding character arcs, the script writer tends to beat the actor. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're Paul Darrow. Unless you're Paul Darrow. (laughs) (laughs) We then get this really curious thing where Jenna has dealt initially with the Guardians. She's killed at least one of them. She's locked the door of the hold. That would presumably be a very secure part of the ship. They're now trapped in there. Well, you would think so. I mean, there is a bit where they're obviously siphoning the power off, which you think probably would be an excuse for them to go and open the door and try and see what's going on. But they don't. Actually, that doesn't happen at that point. No. Gan just says he's going to go down and sort them all out. Yes, takes the gun with a big grin and off he goes. Yeah. Now, given what we're about to talk about, that's a really bizarre thing to do uh, because he disappears Jenna can't contact him she goes down she can't find him we get that shot where we as the audience see his hand he's clearly injured or un- semi-conscious or whatever inside the ship I'm not sure how she missed him but no you sort of wonder really what the hell happened when he did go down there because I mean they, they obviously outright are going to kill Jenna so you sort of wonder what actually happened when he went down there yeah it's really really odd because then you get the bit where he does come out and he says implant not possible for me to kill now and he's just obviously in pain and ranting yeah now if he knew that it wasn't possible for him to kill it makes absolutely no sense that he would take a gun and go down and try and sort them out no plus of course i guess we do have to make the point we have actually seen him kill someone last week during the fight in sickness alpha he puts the spear into the guy so although you could read the line as implant not possible for me to kill now as in now i've got the implant it's equally possible and i think given sickness alpha and other stuff we're going to see to read it as not possible for me to kill now as in in this moment now and and again it's very hard without sort of obviously jumping several episodes ahead but yeah I, i i that's certainly how i would have read it so as i say we've seen him alone with jenna he's had headaches yeah. he's done something either nefarious or just pathetic with the Guardians. Mm. Like, either he's just been knocked out by the Guardians or there's something else going on. Maybe they did actually stab him with a space knife and found it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) So they wound up hitting him over the head with a wrench or something. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So this is all left open-ended, and it is stuff that we need to flag, and I think we do need to come back to and build as the series goes on. An important point, though, is that Zen does give him his first name. Yes, Olag. One thing I was going to say just before we move on from there... In the, the Liberation book by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore, there is, in part of their discussion of this episode, there is some of their analysis of Gan. So, look, if you want to do a bit of future reading, that might not be a bad one to check out. Uh, yes, although it is quite spoiler-heavy. Yeah, uh, yes, it is. So, uh, if you're not worried about spoilers, feel free to read ahead. Uh, otherwise, we will stick to our role and we will just build this, this, yes. this Gan plot as we go on. 
The final thing we need to talk about is, of course, Callie, because the Seven has been completed. Callie is the last member of the crew to come on board. Interestingly enough, given this is her introduction episode, we don't see Callie until 32 minutes into a 50-minute episode. It's as late as that. It's as late as that. So we have her introduction. She approaches Blake, knocks him down. It's clear that she can send thoughts. She's clearly telepathic because... This is a sci-fi show in the 1970s, so something has to be telepathic. That's right. It's, it's, it's obligatory. When she does knock Blake down, you can actually see her boot print on the front of his tunic. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to say, although she's introduced notionally as a member of the Rebellion, mm. she is a very, very lame fighter. Well, I suppose she says her work was in communication, so you would expect she's probably not one of the, the ones out on the front line, but... No, and it's important to note that because there's a lot of fan commentary around the development of Kelly that I actually don't think is justified here. Now, if in this episode both women characters were shown to be slightly pathetic when it comes to mm. um, you know being physical, that might be one thing. But given that Jenna is really shown to kick ass, she can fight, she can mm. kill the Guardian, she can look after herself... The fact that Callie is pretty much knocked down by Blake pretty easily. Mm. She's incredibly stupid in what she does. Blake having made a lunge for her once, she then approaches him close enough again that he can grab her gun. Yes, do the old look over there. Yeah, she's knocked down by Blake really quickly. She had no idea that there were other people with him and that Avon you know, was just over that hill ready to, ready to shoot her at any moment. And you know, I do love her over the fact that Avon is this middle-class technician or engineer or computer scientist or whatever, and suddenly he's got a gun. He's like, oh, I've got a gun. I could have killed you any time. <laughs> you know, he's being a bit macho out there. But yet, she, all that we know is that she was involved with the Resistance in some way. Yes. She's not a remotely effective freedom fighter in this. No. She has the wonderful line, of course, after she's been captured, may you die alone and silent. <laughs> and very clearly joins forces with Blake. She talks about how the Resistance was wiped out on the planet. They used poison from the sky, which is, again, linking the Federation with chemical weapons, mm. linking them with you know, what we would now call weapons of mass destruction. Yes, and, and she obviously survived because she's an alien. Yes, so, again, any debate about whether Arons and Kelly are offshoots of humanity or are a colony that developed telepathy or whatever would seem to be pretty unequivocally shot down here. Her physiology is different enough from humans that she's immune to whatever poison is used. Yes, and they don't also seem to be perhaps that well known because they clearly don't know that the R&R &R are telepathic, whether they're someone who, a group that keep very much to themselves, perhaps. Yeah, it, it's certainly not, oh, an R&R, &R, we had one of them in our office once, or yeah. <laughs> something like that. I, I think also with the alienness, I, I believe the original intention for Callie was that they were going to make her up differently like she'd have coloured contact lenses and red skin or something which I guess probably proved very difficult once you actually have to do that practically each week yes so that was dropped so I think the intention very clearly is that she is not human yes she talks about how she plans to destroy until she is destroyed given that she's presumably been hanging out alone on that planet for a while you kind of have to ask what was you know keeping her well like, there's just a few more nights living in a quarry because like she hasn't done it yet no and, and it's very good acting on jan chapel's part once blake is actually inside that reactor with the crew and kelly's watching avon take this mm. generator apart she starts to get really really quite scared and shows quite a lot of nervousness mm. and i love the part that when blake gives her the bracelet and says this is the way out she literally just grabs it <laughs> smacks it on her wrist like, i'm getting out of here so i think for all of her macho presentation She's not a natural freedom fighter. She's not a warrior princess or any of that sort of trope. Yes, but maybe a, a believer, but not an effective one. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you get all sorts of people who, for all various reasons, join up with terrorist groups that aren't actually very good terrorists or even particularly violent in nature. Mm. They're just ideologically yes. attracted to the group. Mm. Although she is brought aboard the Liberator, that isn't necessarily taken as something that should have been done. And Jenna particularly is very sceptical. Yeah, there was, and I think thankfully, yes. uh, a drop line of dialogue where clearly it was setting up to be a bit catty with each other and they were both going to compete for Blake. Yes, yeah, so we're very lucky that didn't happen. Yeah. One, one last note, actually, we haven't really talked about is Villa. I mean, the perception of Villa is obviously that he's a coward and that he's... He isn't really... I mean, here he's quite cautious and sort of outwardly non-heroic, but you watch him when he gets the lockpick in his hand, he's extremely capable and actually quite cocky. Yes. You know, he calls A1 and listen, fingers, 
doors are my speciality and then you just watch him voila and open the door for them and in this is in this case he does actually pick the lock yes like, there is actually some physical lock picking that goes on which adds a bit of depth and uh, realism to the character yes which is more probably than just the sort of cowardly comedy relief that we get later on yeah i think there's a lot of stuff in time squad that does work there's a lot of really good character stuff there's a lot of good plot moments there are moments of good direction there are moments of poor direction is it necessarily bigger than the sum of its parts? I'm not sure. No, I, I don't think so. I think if you start breaking it down, and again, as we said earlier, you know, it was intended to be watched once on transmission, not to have two blokes sit in a room 40 <laughs> years later and pick it to bits. But I think if you start to go a bit deeper with it, it doesn't really hold up. And we're comparing it in that to the last three episodes. Yes, it, indeed. It doesn't hold up anywhere nearly as well as they do, or dare I say, the next batch that's coming as well. No. On that note, then, we will move to our regular segments. Our first segment is guest actors, and, well, there are three stunt actors, but no speaking parts. No, that's right. So we'll run through these very quickly. The first is Tony Smart, who would like to have a character in Men Having Badly named after him. But <laughs> I'm sure that's a coincidence. Tony Smart, he has a heap of credits going back to the 70s and 80s. He's done a heap of Bonds. He did the early Batmans. He's done Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, so he's still working now, obviously. He's still working now. He was the stunt coordinator on The NeverEnding Story. Okay. So he's got a lot of stuff. Mark McBride is another one. He has a smaller list, but that includes the Dick Donner Superman films. Again, Batman and the Avengers TV series. And then Frank Henson, who has 97 credits. They include Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. Uh, amusingly, two episodes of Keeping Up Appearances. So I'm not sure what the stunt work was there. What stunts would you have done in that? Not sure there. Uh, The 90s Tomorrow's People Revival was another one of these genre credits. But yeah, look, these are three people who are primarily stunt actors. Yes. I think that shows. Because they do some great fight scenes and some great falls, but their acting isn't very good. No, well, I suppose they're not really required to do much except sort of stand there and look menacing, and one of them obviously has to get bitten by Jenna, but... <laughs> yeah, and sort of throw himself into the electrical panel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, but yeah, big list of credits for all of those. Liberator Databank, we've got a lot to add in here. Mm. The first thing is the introduction of the Liberator's auto repair system, which will become very important as the series goes on. That's right. We also have, obviously, it's quite clear now that Zen has limitations on exactly how much help he can give them. A terminology point, we get the first use of a speed as standard by two or standard by something. Uh, in Sigma Alpha, Blake just asked for, I don't know, standard speed. That's right. And now standard is actually a unit of measurement and you get, in this case, standard by two. Mm-hmm. This is the first time we see the little analysis dome thing on the flight deck in front of Zen. Yes. Which will be used in a lot of future episodes. But here, obviously, they put the navigational computer thing out of the projectile in there. Villa is established as a lockpicker. Yes, it is the first time we see him do anything other really than sleight of hand tricks. Yes. And of course, Kelly's introduced, we've spoken about her. Yes. Look, it was the 1970s. We've spoken to here about cryogenics being all the rage, mm. and that is a very 1970s thing. Although, actually, look, it is increasing in popularity now with the, with the number of wealthy people and that being frozen in liquid nitrogen. Yeah, or it's whatever. funny. It's gone from being a sci-fi trope of you do it to sort of go other places to now just being a... Way of cheating death. Yeah. Again, this isn't meant to be a blooper section, but we do need to mention, because it is quite a famous blooper, the one of Jenna walking down the corridor, and clearly the trigger on the Liberator gun is quite sensitive because it goes off several times. Yeah, she does fire it a couple of times, yes. Another one I had, and it's more a real-world one, actually, the projectile model that they built, and I have to thank the Making Blake 7 site for this, so I'll put another shout out to that Twitter feed. There's a story in there, they built this very nice full-scale projectile model to put on the set for the hold. Now the problem was, and it shows how the unions controlled stuff in the 1970s, it was so big, to get it into the studio, they couldn't use the normal studio doors, they had to get the big loading bay door open. And because of the time they were moving it in, the union guys who were responsible for that had knocked off for the day. So of course they were told, oh no, you can't do that, I'll have to get two guys in on overtime to open the door for you and move it. So their solution was, well, we're not doing that. So they sawed the wings off it, moved it in, and then put the wings back on. (laughs) Yeah, that's a bit of real world intruding on the series. Yeah, look, and again, uh, as we spoke about in our general discussion, that idea of the way that terrorists go about their business or the way Mm. that political revolutionaries go about their business is very much reflected in the way that Blake starts to act in this one. And, you know, we're not that far in 1978 from the end of the Troubles. No. And you do see that here. 
What cool lines did Chris Boucher give to Avon this week? I actually very much like the quite acerbic That falls a little short of my idea of a thorough discussion. <laughs> uh, in the opening scene where they're on the Liberator. Yes, because it, it then goes on where Blake does have a bit of a discussion and he's just said to him, just tell me when you want to leave. Oh, I will. But in the meantime, I think we have a right to know what it is you're planning. Which very obviously, again, sets up this dynamic between the two of them. Yes. And, of course, I do like his well hooray for us. <laughs> <laughs> That is probably the highlight, actually. Plus, of course, Villa gets to have his very nice little line about, yeah, he plans to live forever or die trying. (laughs) Yeah, it it is really good that even by episode four, Avon is so well established and that that Boucher dialogue Mm. is just... Is now starting to come through, I think. And finally, Player of the Week. I'm going to be honest and say, I actually found this one a bit difficult. There's obviously no guest cast, really. So it has to be one of the regulars. And I was sort of debating which one really was the standout. I mean, Jenna gets a lot to do. But I think in terms of looking at the character development, I'd probably have to give it to one of Blake or Avon, I think. We had Blake last week, so I'll go with Avon. Okay, so you're giving Avon his first Player of the Week award? Yeah, with an honourable mention to Jenna. Well, actually, I'm glad you said that. I'm going to give my award to Jenna. Okay. I think that, or particularly to Sally Nevette. Yep. who does a really good job here of making Jenna a three-dimensional character. There are moments here where she kicks ass. There are other moments when she's understandably and naturally mm. terrified, but she portrays the character as someone who can move past being terrified and still be very powerful and very effective. Mm-hmm. And she also gets some nice lines. She's very careful in the way that she deals in the conflict between Blake and Avon, and she does get those acerbic lines at Kelly at the end. So I actually think that this is a one for Sally Nevette. There you go. So that's our discussion of Time Squad. I think there's a lot that actually we've taken out of what at first glance seems to be an insubstantial episode. There's actually a lot going on below the surface. But we really start to move in the adventures proper with the full seven next week with The Web. Mm, won't that be fun? Yes, yeah, so I've been Dave. I've been Richard. And now let's set course for Kentaro. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Federation signals and navigation controls are beamed into Saurian Major, boosted and redirected. It's a vital nerve center in the Federation space control system. Destroy that and you blind, deafen and silence them. That's what we're going to do. A blow for freedom. Yes, our freedom. For a clever man, you're not very bright. Deaf, dumb and blind, how are they going to catch us? I'm sure Blake will manage it somehow.